This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Storytelling is a gift and a skill. And when told well, a story can move people, it can drive action, it can teach, and it can inspire. Eric Bork knows this more than most. Eric is a screenwriter who has worked on projects such as Band of Brothers, From the Earth to the Moon, and more. We were excited to talk to him on this episode of Marketing Trends about the heart of storytelling and why it's important as a way to grab an audience and carry them with you. Eric discusses how a story begins, what to focus on while you're developing your story, and what it means to create an emotional connection with your audience. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And we have a special episode for everyone today. Very, very special guest. Eric, what's going on? Hey, how are you, Ian? Good to be here. It's great to have you. Everybody is a special guest on this show because we have so many great guests. But you're extra special uh, for me personally because I am a huge fan of Band of Brothers and I'm a huge fan of yours. And I've been following along, uh, reading your blog for about the past, I don't even know how many years, for for years and years and years uh, to learn how to be a better writer. And for our marketing audience, everybody needs to learn how to be a better writer. Um, And so we thought, why not bring you on the show, talk about Band of Brothers, talk about writing, talk about your book um, and and all that. So I want to know, before we get into all that, what was your first inkling that you wanted to be a writer? You know, that's a good question. I, you know, I always go back to a movie that had an impact on me when I was in high school in the 80s, early 80s, The World According to Garp. When I saw that movie in the theater with my friends, something about it really clicked with me. I mean, it was a movie about a writer. I don't know if you ever saw it or read the book. Uh, it wasn't well-reviewed. It didn't do well at the box office. People always said they liked the book better. I read the book later and actually still prefer the movie. But something about that movie really made me for the first time think about, you know, writing for the screen. So then uh, there may have been something before then, but that's the that's the memory that I always uh, bring up. In fact, I call my blog Flying Wrestler, which is partly a, an homage to that movie because Garp was both a wrestler and a writer and a guy that was obsessed with flying. So it's funny. I, I've been reading for a while and I don't know if I just missed that, but I didn't know that until we were doing the interview prep. Uh, and I was always wondering why Flying Wrestler. That's so funny. Yeah, there's a little there's a little link somewhere on my homepage that says "Why Flying Wrestler," but I don't know if people see that very often. Being a writer in this day and age, I would argue, is more important than ever. Um, and for marketers, it's definitely more important than ever. We talk about on the show a lot that if uh, to use the Star Wars analogy, that your product or service. Um, is not the hero. Your customer is the hero. Your customer is Luke. Uh, you are Obi-Wan and your product and service is the lightsaber um, in, this, in that kind of uh, in that kind of analogy. Um, and you were the type of person who actually creates those stories. So you have been doing this for a long time. Um, and we're going to get into a bunch of your works and things like that. Um, but you recently wrote a book 
uh, the idea, the seven elements of a viable story for screen, stage, or fiction. And I want to know, after writing for so long, why did you decide to write this type of book? Well, as you know, I've been blogging for a while, uh, for probably about 10 years, during which time I've been helping writers from all over the world, teaching and mentoring and coaching and consulting, whatever term you want to use, uh, people that are trying to write mostly for the screen, TV or film. And I've, during that time, codified a lot of principles about writing that I probably already kind of understood from my own writing career, uh, but which I had to sort of teach to others. And I started to really see over and over again what the main mistakes writers made, uh, the main issues they grappled with, the main understandings that I had that they maybe didn't have that I was always communicating to them. So this turned into a, a variety of blog posts over the years that are basically each one is like a tip about a certain element of, of screenwriting, typically in story and character. A friend said, you know, you could probably turn that into a book. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, it wasn't as easy as that, but it kind of started with that, taking some of the stuff on the blog and, uh, and turning it into a cohesive statement about something. And the statement that I ended up with reflects my point of view about writing that is maybe part of my unique proposition is focusing on the idea is very important. Writers tend to want to jump into writing something, writing a script or even outlining scenes to then write a script from. But what we find over and over again is usually they're operating from a flawed premise, a flawed idea for their story or their series or whatever it is. And I learned that both professionally in the industry, doing it myself, but also seeing writers bring their scripts to me where I always felt that there was a flaw in the idea that if they brought to me at the very beginning, I could have worked with them on rather than spending so much time on a script and getting caught up in the weeds, you know, the details, the trees, and maybe not realizing that their forest had a flaw to it, whatever analogy you want to use. My book, instead of just being about screenwriting, which there are so many books about that, is about the idea itself, what makes a viable idea. And so maybe it goes beyond screenwriting to any kind of story writing. What are those elements? And, you know, at the center of any story is a problem that somebody wants to solve that hopefully the audience for the story is emotionally invested in that problem getting solved. And so there's an acronym in my book, the word problem becomes the seven elements, each one starting with a letter from that word. So and each of those seven elements describe the kind of thing that your problem or your story needs to have for it to have a chance at being you know, viable within the marketplace. I love that. And I love how you talk about the marketplace because, you know, part of the problem as someone who studied screenwriting for years as a uh, purely an, an amateur, um, but now gets to write a lot of stories via, for podcasts and partnering with really big organizations. Um, part of the big problem for writers is like, at the end of the day, somebody has to buy this thing. And, and that's a really hard part. But if you're on a marketing team, um, the person, nobody's going to buy the thing that you're, the story that you're telling, but they are going to have it resonate in some way. And I think that that's probably the, the hard part for a lot of marketers is like, they feel like they're working off of maybe an unviable starting point and that they don't have the right kind of, um, thing that they want to be talking about. Um, do you feel like a lot of the writers that you've worked with over the years at UCLA and beyond have like an 80% solution and they're just kind of missing a few tweaks or is it like, you know, they're, they're missing the 80%. It's definitely more than 20%. 
<laughs> in terms of what's missing. I would say with most writers starting out and studying the craft and even with professional writers, a lot of times the ideas that they pitch uh, have flaws that make them not go anywhere. I mean, you know, when you're a professional writer, you have to first get your ideas past like a manager or an agent and then a producer. There are all these hurdles. And at every point in the process, most ideas fail, even for professionals. Their agent, their manager shoots them down. You know, they have to go back to the drawing board. You know, I used to pitch 20, 30, 40 ideas for series to my agent to find one that he thought was worth me going out, you know, and him putting his name on to set me up on meetings to pitch it to producers. So um, I don't put myself in a special separate category. I think with all writers, you know, getting the idea right is hard. And that's why, you know, I felt like a whole book about just the idea part of the, part of the process was worth writing because everybody struggles with that. For our listeners, I don't ask for much. Uh, you know, we've put out whatever, 160 episodes of this show for free. And uh, I don't ask for much. Everybody, you know, your marketing leader, go buy the book for your team. Check it out. Talk about it together as a group, and uh, let me know how it goes. Because uh, you know, I think that this is something that there are elements to a story, and a lot of the marketers just don't have kind of that foundation of storytelling. Uh, especially if you're a product marketer or a growth marketer or somebody like that who is not working on story a lot, and it kind of gets your your whole team on the same page. So everybody, go check out the book. Uh, I highly recommend it. And, uh, and, and we'll get into some of the stories that you've told in your career where you've used these kind of same principles like Band of Brothers, From the Earth to the Moon, things like that. So how did you first come about the idea, the conversations, learning about Dick Winters, getting involved in the Band of Brothers uh, idea kind of initially? Well, I'd worked with Tom Hanks for quite a few years at that point, first as one of his assistants. And then he offered me this incredible life-changing opportunity to help him kind of figure out the mini-series that became From the Earth to the Moon about the Apollo space program, which he executive produced for HBO a few years before Band of Brothers. So From the Earth to the Moon came first. That was my first project where I eventually got to be one of the writers writing some of the scripts. And I got to be a kind of apprentice producer on the whole project there as kind of part of the creative team from the beginning and then all the way through to the end. Band of Brothers was a couple years after we had finished From the Earth to the Moon, which HBO was happy with, you know, the money they spent and won the Emmys and all the stuff that I guess mattered to them in terms of their subscriber, you know, the economics of how their business works. Because, you know, it's not about ratings with HBO, it's about number of subscribers, just like Netflix today. Between From the Earth to the Moon and Band of Brothers, Tom had starred in Saving Private Ryan, uh, working with Steven Spielberg. And together they decided that it would be cool to do a World War two miniseries and they uh, had a couple of different books by Stephen Ambrose. Uh, one of them was Citizen Soldiers that I think for a while they flirted with, but then they decided Band of Brothers, which followed this particular company of men all the way through the war, was a better fit for miniseries. So I wasn't part of all of that. It was like they decided they want to do that. They took it to HBO. HBO said yes. And then you know, they had to assemble a team of writers and producers and so forth. And, and that's when Tom uh, asked me to be involved and help figure out an hour miniseries. Once you, you kind of have a, uh, a piece of work that's already written and now you want to turn it into a 10-part series, 
Can you kind of walk me through like what that process is like to take something and to, you know, make it adapted to uh, something like a 10 part miniseries? And I also kind of want to say on this too, I, I mean, I love Band of Brothers. It's probably my favorite TV show of all time. It's unbelievably like good for someone who was in the military and I was extremely affected by it. And I remember just like sitting and like weeping openly at, at, at every single uh, you know, time they interviewed kind of some of those, those guys and everything. Um, but the other piece was this particular show was so like kind of ahead of its time. And now it feels like everybody does these limited run series. So I'm curious from that, from that perspective as well. Yeah, it definitely did seem to launch a, uh, a movement for more of that kind of stuff. And Tom, Tom Hanks and his company Playtone certainly produced other miniseries after that. And then like, like you said, it's, there've been more limited series series uh sense a higher higher frequency of them than there were back then back then the form was a little bit dead you know there'd been like roots and the holocaust and stuff yeah. in like the 70s but then late 90s early 2000s uh i think from the earth to the moon and banner brothers were definitely part of kind of reviving uh that kind of limited series um uh medium but as far as figuring out the episodes you know we had the book obviously we had the history of this company we knew the overall shape of their experiences. You know, they started out training, they jumped on D-Day into occupied France. They fought in a series of battles, climaxing with the Battle of the Bulge. And then in the end, they liberated a concentration camp that they had kind of stumbled upon and they ended up in Hitler's Eagle's Nest. So that was the, you know, beginning, middle and end. There were some battles along the way in the middle that didn't always go their way. Um, but, you know, we knew eventually it had this kind of happy ending, but a lot of, of the men died or were badly wounded along the way. So then it became a question of, okay, well, what is, if it's 10 hours, what is each hour? Figuring out a story for each hour, how much of that chronology is each hour going to cover with an eye toward wanting each hour to have its own beginning, middle and end. So it mm -hmm. feels like a standalone story in some way. And what that often meant was zeroing in on a particular character that had something going on that episode that was unique to them that had a kind of classic problem that complicates and builds as the main character with the problem is trying to address it, usually building to a crisis where things are at a low point and then a climax, which is a kind of final battle or confrontation where they resolve it for good or bad. And then the story is over. And so we wanted, and I know I was personally obsessed with the idea that you know, each episode we had to have that. So every episode was always going to be a chapter in Easy Company's march through the war with Dick Winters and Lewis Nixon kind of at the heart of it, you know, in command of this company. And eventually Winters is actually battalion commander, but we needed other stuff beyond just Winters and Nixon briefing the men on what this mission is and then showing the mission of the week and seeing how it goes. We wanted to have personal stories as well. So one episode was about a medic. The whole episode was following this medic as he was trying to get morphine to, you know, to treat these guys that were in foxholes getting shelled. Another episode was about a young soldier who, who had a case of hysterical blindness and had to sign of find the will to kind of do his job as a, you know, as a rifleman, as a paratrooper during a tough battle. Um, one was Nixon second to last episode feeling disillusioned, drinking a lot, kind of why are we, you know, what's it all for? He's seen too many bad things. And then they find this concentration camp and it, and it, and it gives us some kind of a sense of, oh, this is why we fight. The episode was called Why We Fight. So each episode, there was a lot of identifying 
you know, who that person is going to be, what their journey is through that hour, in addition to what events of the overall story are going to be chronicled in that hour in a way that it feels like both of those things have a kind of beginning, middle, and end within that episode. And there was a lot of trial and error in the beginning. I think we had 13 episodes and then we, you know, re reconfigured a bit and ended up being 10. Um, and some were easier than others to, to make work, you know? <laughs> uh, but that was the basic, you know, kind of ideation of conceiving theories. And how many writers were working on that show? I think we had like five or six. Um, and, you know, some wrote one episode, some wrote two or sort of pieces of two or three. Like I have writing credit on a couple different ones. And sometimes we have shared credit because one writer would write a draft and then another writer would later rewrite it. You'd end up with shared writing credit. So it became, you know, it became a, a kind of team effort where, you know, people are working together on multiple scripts. Uh, but I think it was, I think it was five or six of us. I could count it in my head. I'm pretty sure it was six. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which, which episodes do you have writing credits on? I have credits on episodes eight and 10. And then I also did some uncredited rewriting on several of the others. Well, and the reason why I bring that up is I, I always, I think that that writer's room mentality is something really important for like marketing people. Um, and the who gets the credit and how credits work are definitely not something that happens in, in marketing, right? I mean, it happens on maybe your resume later on down the road, but it's not something that in the, in the real time matters. Um, and then you also had you know, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg in, in this ecosystem. And what was it like to work with those type of folks? Um, was it something that you all felt like an obligation to do things a certain way? Did you feel like you were doing things your own way? Like, I'm curious, how did that team dynamic work? Um, first of all, I just realized it's seven. It was seven writers. <laughs> if you count, I was doing the math again in my head as you were talking. Although I did hear your question because Tom... Tom Hanks actually did some writing as well. And I don't think I was counting him. I was thinking the six others of us. Um, but, you know, I had worked with Tom before. Like I said, I, we worked on From the Earth to the Moon. So I'd already been through doing a big mini series with him where it was two, three year process. It was like my whole life for two or three years. And I'd worked with him for years before that as basically one of his assistants. So I kind of, and, and the, the main producer who ran the show from day to day, sort of reporting to Tom and Steven, but they weren't there like every single day doing all the producing. They were like there for the high level decision making, right? That person had worked on From the Earth to the Moon as well. And we had a very close working relationship. So I had a comfort level going in. I hadn't worked with Steven Spielberg before, but I'd worked with Tom and I knew Tom's taste and I knew how, you know, he was very much concerned with accuracy um, as much as possible. But, you know, you always have to fudge things somewhat. And when you're recreating history, but accuracy as much as possible, trying to do things in a way that was fresh and not too familiar and ultimately paying tribute to these men. And those were all things we had kind of done with the astronauts or tried to do on From the Earth to the Moon. So, but yes, I mean, still it's Tom Hanks and I always, you know, looked up to him and felt like, you know, it was such a big responsibility to try to try to please him and to try to, to do do it in a way that he would be happy with it. At the end of the day, he and Steven had to be happy with it. Um, so Steven Spielberg was a brand new you know, person for me to, to deal with. I didn't have as many interactions with him. There were cer certain key meetings along the way that there'd be a group of us and I'd be in the room. Um, wasn't a one-on-one -on -one thing, but you know, some of the key decision points, hiring directors, you know, giving notes on some of the scripts, 
in the editing room looking at the cuts and having no he would have notes and we would sort of write down all those notes and go and try and you know make the changes to the edits of the shows to try to address his notes um but definitely it's their project right and everybody is pretty much working for them so you put your own stamp on it to some degree because you can't help it but you're ultimately trying to do it in a way that they're going to be happy with it, which is what it's like to work on any TV show as a writer. You have a boss. It's a very not democratic system. There's a showrunner who's usually the writer, often creator of the show, but they're the head writer and everybody works for them. And all the other writers are trying to write it in such a way that that person will be happy with it. So definitely we all felt that responsibility, but I think there was also the larger responsibility of kind of paying tribute to these men and what they achieved, which we all had read the Ambrose book. And there were additional interviews done and additional transcripts of those made available to us. And we also talked to the veterans ourselves, the writers, and then later the actors did. Many of them were still alive and we could ask them more pointed questions about specific things we were going to be dramatizing. So I think the overriding thing was you want to do justice to their experience. You want to get it right. Um, and, and, but also have it work for an audience, which means it's got to be coherent and compelling and entertaining and personal and emotional and do all the things that, you know, that I talk about, like in my book and I work with writers about what a story needs to have. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of the struggle that writers have that I know I have as a writer is that, um, you're, you hear events from someone oftentimes like in a chronological fashion or like not necessarily with the most emotion because it happened a long time ago or they can't really remember or, you know, whatever it is, but in that moment, and, you know, I feel like the, even the term dramatized is, um, is even like a little, like, um, kind of played the wrong way because at the time, I mean, whatever you portrayed in Band of Brothers was definitely crazier on the ground than it was in the movie. Like, there's pretty much no way that that isn't the case, right? Even though parts of it are, you know, fudged a little here or there. And I think that it's one of the things of why, like, I am so critical of any military or battle scene. um, Because there's really... There's just so many liberty, not to, you know, speak ill of, of other shows, but like there's a really popular war movie that everybody loves that is so historically inaccurate for like just how anything would go uh, in Iraq. It was like, it's just not, not truthful to the audience. And they're like kind of, you know, kind of sold a bill of goods. And so as a writer, you're trying to find these like intense moments and convey them in a way that a lot of that stuff is happening inside of people's heads, right? Like that's the hard part. And I think when you're trying to make these huge decisions in your life to figure out how I'm going to do things or how I'm going to react to something that's so complex that just happened to be or so emotional or hurtful, um, when you tell somebody about it later on, you're not really that good at explaining your emotions. Um, how did you kind of get those stories out of them and kind of feel empathetic towards those people? First of all, I, I definitely agree that, you know, what they went through was, you know, way more dramatic than you know anything we're going to be able to portray on screen in, in a sense. And when I say dramatize, I don't mean make it more dramatic than it was. What I really meant was turn it into a coherence because real life, when you just show real life in all of its kind of chaotic randomness, it usually doesn't do that, right? Yeah, and so totally. there's a lot of shaping that you have to do to turn it into something that an audience can follow and 
sort of get out of it what you feel you want them to be able to get out of it, to understand and be emotionally invested. So much of it is about emotional investment. That's really the name of the game. The audience has to care about the characters and what they're facing and what's going on. There's a lot of principles for how you achieve that emotional investment. But you're right. They, you know, it's a long time ago, these memories. And, you know, they, like the astronauts that I'd interviewed for From the Earth to the Moon and who we read their stories, you know, they're training was not to talk about the emotion, you yeah. know, especially the emotion that the average totally. viewer is going to feel, which is a lot of fear. You know, their training is to transcend all that, you know, better than I do. Uh, and so talking about it is just not natural to them. And maybe they didn't even experience it in the same way that, you know, somebody like me would experience it if I was in that situation. But it's hard to, to know once you have the training, how you're going to be, you know, it, it definitely can be challenging to get the emotion from them to get them to talk about it. It. And some of it is you really just have to imagine what it must have been and do your best as a writer. Because sometimes they're not alive to tell you anyway. Do your best as a writer too with your understanding of human nature and the facts that you have and maybe what other people who were there tell you about it. You give it your best shot at capturing the emotional experience that you think it probably was. But you're often as a writer and actors too are having to find and mine that emotion that the real life people aren't in touch with or, or aren't talking about, or maybe in some cases didn't have in the same way that you're portraying it, but you have to find that for the audience to be able to be engaged. One of the moments for me that is so cool is Lipton's Battlefield Commission um, in episode eight, Last Patrol. And I wanted to, to talk to you about this because this is something that, I, this was like something I did in the military. And so it's so like personal to me that it's something we, we never, ever, 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 ever do anymore. And it's something very unique to like World War II and, and previous days where people would get like literally promoted on the battlefield, like commissioned to an officer or promoted. We have, we had very minimal stuff that I did when I was in Afghanistan for battlefield battlefield promotions. I think we had like a couple, but it would be going from like sergeant to staff sergeant or something like that. But it's such an important thing in the military. Like you can't even express how big of a deal it is. And you absolutely nailed it in the show of like, we're with him for so long. And like that scene just absolutely just like is amazing to me. I'm curious, like, is that something that went down? How did that go down? How did you hear that story? Uh, and how did you kind of create that tension for us over the course of the, the series? Because it's something that just absolutely landed for me. Hmm. Well, Lipton, who was portrayed by Donnie Wahlberg in the series, was one of the key characters, one of the five probably most important characters that we were following. So um, I don't really have a super strong memory of the particular Battlefield Commission and the scenes and how that ended up in the series in the exact place that it did. Uh, but what I have more memories of are, are, are things yeah. that came before and after that, mainly that episode seven, the one right before eight, was really the Lipton episode. It was the episode told from his point of view as the top enlisted man, the company who, who you know, has a voiceover narrating only episode I think that had, well, no, we had some voiceover in episode one and in 10 as well from winners. But anyway, probably the only one that's not winners that has a voiceover in the miniseries, if I remember correctly. Actually, no, I think episode eight has one from Webster. It's been a while. It's been 20 years since we wrote this uh, and shot it. But in fact, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary uh, next month at a barbecue that one of the actors puts on every year. Oh, a lot of these awesome. actors and writers and other people that worked on the shows have stayed in 
in touch. And at least once a year, we all see each other again. And this will be the 20th. The anniversary of when they did their boot camp as actors to 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 get started on this yeah. like, training as as pretend soldiers. Anyway, uh, so Lipton in episode seven was um, I mean that's like my favorite episode and one that I didn't have as much to do with. I, I didn't do any of the writing, although Graham Yost, who did write it later, told me that it was my idea that it be from Lipton's point of view, which I didn't even remember. But then I felt <laughs> proud. Uh, but, but you know, in the end, it's like you know he kind of gets told by the new company commander, you're the one that's been holding this together. You're the guy. And it's like this particular battlefield commission scene, which you're saying happens in, in eight. I don't even remember what episode the commission happens, but I remember that scene. And then I also remember in episode 10, something I was more intimately involved in was the scene where the German general surrenders to Lipton. And that was a thing that was in the book that Lipton had just became a lieutenant. You know, Lieutenant Carwood Lipton received the surrender of a general of the you know yeah. German army and like what a cool thing that was and that scene where the German general talks to his troops he asks if it's okay if he dresses his men I think Lipton says it's okay and he he does this speech to the men that the Americans are hearing it translated and realizing that everything he's saying to them is how they feel too like they all went through the same thing that was definitely a scene that was like my idea to put that in and it, we needed something in episode ten to to sort of um, fix some things and I remember you know, finding that anecdote in the book that I'd forgotten about when we were in the middle of shooting uh, other episodes and 10 was coming up. And so I definitely wrote that scene and then the editing room was working with the editor on it. So that was like a, the, the moment for Lipton as an officer now doing something important. So my mind goes more to those two things than the actual battlefield commission. Although I certainly remember it. I knew it was in the book. I knew it was, you know, we I'm sure planned all along that that would have to be in the miniseries somewhere because he's such an important character and it's an important event for him. Yeah, and one that's and that's kind of what is so cool about this story and because you see the people progress and it's over this period of time and none of it was supposed to be this way, right? Like they they were only supposed to be there for a little bit and all these things and just all of the changes that over time um kind of happened to these characters, but to see something like that where like so many of these people have these massive life transformations that happen to them that it seems so silly and trivial that putting a gold bar on your on your you know kevlar or whatever it would matter right but yet for some reason like it does and i just think that that's it's a cool like look at transformation and transforming or transforming a character um I, i'm curious you talk a lot about and for those of our listeners who who don't hear from a lot of screenwriters, um, kind of just the craziness of writing and writers' rooms and like deconstructing this thing and how much sausage making goes on. And for marketers, a lot of times that's like you know behind the scenes of a campaign. And then when it comes to fruition, you're like, wow, I can't believe we did that and it ended up being great or bad or whatever. How do you kind of like mentally prepare for the sausage making? <laughs> Well, every project's different. It's it's you know it's a group of people like any business undertaking. When you're working on a, on a show, you know from a writing standpoint, different shows operate very differently and are run by different personalities. And and so, um, Band of Brothers, we didn't even really have a writers' room per se. We each all wrote separately the episodes that we were writing, uh, and then kind of like sent them in to the producers and 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 got notes or in my case as a 
one of the producers, I was giving some of the notes to some of the other writers. So it wasn't like we were all sitting together oh, wow. um, yeah. having to coexist in a room. Although I have worked on TV shows where there was that traditional writer's room. And a lot depends on the person at the top who's running the room and who, you know, what their personality is, what their dictates are. And they're probably the one that hired everybody in the room. And so they picked everybody for a reason. And, and uh, you're all, you know, trying to figure out your place in that ecosystem. System. I mean, in the Hollywood world, when you're lucky enough to be writing on a show, it can be a high wire act where it's like, you know, you're, you're grateful for the opportunity. You're trying to please people. You hope that it lasts. You hope that you do a good job because it can end very suddenly. You could be fired or the show could get canceled also, which happens more often than not. It's the material and it's the people, right? So you, you want to pick material that you feel you can bring something to that you have passion for and that you like and hopefully be working for and with people that you also feel that way about that, that it's going to be a good mix but you don't necessarily know until you get in there so there's only so much preparation you can do on the people side of it but on the material side of it it's a lot about you know really immersing yourself in what is this thing I'm going to be working on and what's my way in as a writer that you know how will I be able to contribute to this what about this appeals to me because you kind of have to have your own sort of passion about whatever it is you're going to be doing. You have to be really interested in it, you know, and, um, and find something that appeals to you as a story or stories that you're going to write for it. How do you go about pitching your ideas? So much of being a writer is pitching, uh, depending on who you are, I suppose. Um, but you've pitched a ton of people, a ton of ideas. Uh, and I'm curious, what's your, what's your kind of mental model for, for pitching big ideas? Well, it's, it's all about preparation. It's all about knowing basically everything that you're going to say before you say it. You know, I mean, I actually, when I've pitched like an idea for a series to a network executive, I've basically written a 10 minute pitch and memorized it <laughs> and then delivered it in a way that felt conversational, hopefully, um, as opposed to reading the written pitch, right? You want it to sound like you're just saying it off the top of your head. But I have learned that if I go in less prepared than that, you know, it won't go as well. I'll stumble around. I won't be as confident. I'll be more nervous and I won't hit the, the best points in the best way. Not everybody word for word writes out a pitch. Some people just do like kind of like bullet points and each bullet point they know what to say for that bullet point. And I've done it that way at times, but I'm more of a write out the whole thing guy most of the time. Uh, but, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, understand the structure of a pitch, what the things are that they're going to want to know. Uh, and, you know, you, you usually start with what got you personally invested in or interested in the idea or the world of whatever it is you're pitching. You know, those kind of personal anecdotes that feel human and emotional and that tie you as a writer to the material or the idea is very helpful, partly because it just creates rapport but it also guides them into the idea from a sort of personal place to, okay, here's his idea. And also it helps them to imagine that, oh, only this writer could write this idea in this way. It's personal to them, their approach and their take on whatever this is. This is meaningful to them. This, is, this has a life resonance to them, to this writer that I can relate to. That's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that, that, that they would care about you know, why you're connected to the story personally, why you're personally invested in telling it, not just, you know, um, that it's, it's, this is a talented writer who has a great, you know, idea for a show or something that it, it really matters, like the why behind it. 
were there any times that you got feedback? I mean, I'm sure there's many, but any times that you got feedback, an idea or something that you were pitching that was, you felt like was really good and you got rejected and, uh, you know, and, and, and hurt the most. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you find out later that they're not going to pursue it, although you can sort of tell because if they're interested in pursuing it, they have a lot of questions that are enthusiastic, interested questions, right? So you can sort of tell. And when that happens, you start to feel really good because you know that they've engaged. It fails at some point, whether it's getting your agent interested, getting a production company, a studio, a network, there's all these rungs of the ladder to sell like a TV show or a movie um, that you have to get past multiple people before you finally have it uh, you're finally talking to the real decision maker, you know, which I guess is not atypical in any business setting. It's just something you have to inure yourself to and be thick skinned about to, to know that, you know, a lot of times it's going to not work and you just have to go back to the drawing board or pitch it to other people because one no doesn't mean everyone's going to be a no. Yeah, that makes sense. Were there, are there any kind of times that you feel like, you know, a lot of times they say like, you know, it's who you know and all this sort of stuff. Obviously, you've had a ton of, worked with a ton of creative people and a ton of awesome people where you feel like certain individuals were really influential in your career or helpful in your career or or uh, or just gave you the, the, uh, the pep talk that you needed. Well, I mean, the two people that I mentioned thus far were obviously that. I mean, Tom Hanks, you know, gave me my career. I mean, he gave me the opportunity and then multiple opportunities after that, that didn't exist otherwise. And, you know, working on those productions for him, those two I mentioned, and there, there were some others as well that never got produced, but I got paid to write things and stuff with him as the producer. Um, you know, he has a level and had a level of you know power and influence that if he wanted to do something, you know, it made it much easier. I didn't necessarily have to pitch it to anybody. A lot of times it was his idea anyway. So it was more him asking me if I wanted to work on a particular thing and the pitching it to the studio or network was already kind of handled, you know? Uh, so that's a great place to be in. Other times I've just been the writer on my own trying to sell people on stuff in the more traditional way where I didn't have anybody like that in my corner. And I had to like build that team person by person, starting with like my own agent or manager and, and then a production company, et cetera. Um, but then the other person that that helped me the most, the, this producer that I mentioned, Tony Toe, who was the, really the day-to-day -day producer on both those miniseries. Tom gave me the opportunities, but Tony really helped mentor me and helped me find my way. You know, we, we always hear about the four-quadrant film, right? Um, or four-quadrant show. When you're writing like outside of that, are you thinking about the audience that you're writing it for? Like from the Earth to the Moon, like, Everybody's going to be interested in that, more or less. Um, but specifically, anyone who's who loves, you know, space or the anything to do with, um, you know, the kind of space race and things like that. Obviously, they're going to be super in tune to that. But as you're writing different stories, like, are you thinking about the particular like audience profile in mind of certain types of shows? Are networks looking for that sort of thing? How does that work? Well, I think networks are definitely thinking about that. Um, I don't so much, and that could be a failing on my part. I don't know. I mean, I, what I do is I think about, I have to love it. I have to want to see it. I'm kind of writing for myself first as an audience. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about the audience in an abstract way, and I'm thinking if I was the audience for this, would I like it? I'm not necessarily thinking, you know, will men 25 to 49 like this? I don't 
think in those terms very much. Um, but with like from the earth to the moon, you know, we knew that space junkies would like it and we knew that wasn't enough. So in general, I'm just thinking of an audience that's a more general audience, not the people that are already going to be interested in this topic. So I'm thinking more in the general terms of why would the average lay person who isn't inherently interested in this potentially still enjoy this and become emotionally involved with this. So it's more audience in general and me as an audience, as opposed to specific segments or demographics Although I suppose if I was like writing a kids movie, I'd have to be thinking in terms of, well, what, what do kids understand and what entertains kids, et cetera. I haven't done that. So um, the, per, the particular kind of stuff I have written doesn't generally in my own mind feel like it fits a certain segment. And I have to think about that segment. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a shortcoming. I would say it's like, I think that those, those audience demographic things are, silly to begin with, right? Like those demographics matter because an advertiser cares about those seg audience segments because they need some sort of general targeting. With like the rise of digital advertising and all sorts of the crazy stuff out there and intent-based marketing, which we talk about a ton on the show, like that stuff actually matters less and less. And like even what you see, what you see now with, with Netflix moving to like taste clusters, like they're making shows within taste clusters. Like they're making shows that intentionally they don't want, or they like people who like vampires or like what, you know, whatever those things are that they're trying to win narrow niches rather than certain types of content in narrow niches. I think that that's super fascinating from a writing perspective that you can, um, you can kind of narrow your focus into certain very, very active groups. I mean, we super see this with podcasts, um, obviously, but it's just a fascinating uh, kind of dynamic to me of of how media is changing and how stories potentially are changing as well. Yeah, I have heard that about Netflix. I have a friend that, that works there um, and I don't pretend to understand exactly how they do that or what they're doing, but that is an interesting different way to do it to kind of micro-target different interests, which I guess they're able to do when the old school you know, networking studios weren't. Also, the old school networking studios were just trying to appeal often to the widest possible audience, you know, especially network television back like when I was a kid, when there was just network television and they all had to appeal to as many millions of people as possible. Nowadays, things are much more fragmented, which is good for writers in the sense that, you know, there are a lot of different um, buyers for different kinds of, of projects than there used to be. And those projects don't have to appeal. They don't have to be four quadrant or they don't have to appeal to you know, so many millions of viewers every week or you're gonna get canceled. Okay, let's talk about elements of a story. Uh, again, everyone should check out your book, The Idea, for, for a deep dive into this. Um, but what are the seven elements of a viable story? And how can our listeners who are trying to figure out how to write stories, craft their stories with, with these elements in mind? Yeah, so what I came up with in the book was this acronym of the, of the word problem and seven elements, each of which start with a letter of the word problem. So the first of the seven elements is punishing, which means in any good story, you're, you know, you want to think about story in terms of a particular individual main character. First of all, you don't want to think in terms of like, you know, the U S army or the 101st airborne or whatever you want to think about Dick Winters or Carwood Lipton or this particular person with a particular personal problem that matters to them. Right. 
they're going to fail to solve it. And in fact, in trying to solve it, it's going to get more complicated and worse. And it's going to build in difficulty and importance and stakes. And it's going to complicate so that they actually add to their troubles as they're trying to solve it until eventually it gets resolved. So the way you achieve that is to make it very punishing. You, you want the main character to be mostly losing for most of the story. No matter how powerful they are, the forces against them have to be more powerful because as soon as they start winning, the story slacks off. We don't want to watch people winning. We want to watch people losing, but with a chance at winning that seems distant and difficult. That's what makes something exciting to watch. So like if you're a sports fan and your team, let's say you're an NBA fan and you're team is winning every game by 20 points, you can't be bothered to watch it. It becomes boring to you, right? Even though you're rooting for them to win, which audiences, you want them to be rooting for the main character in your story, but they're going to do that best if that character is losing and up against something or someone seemingly more powerful than them in whatever genre it is. It could be a romantic comedy. It could be a thriller. It doesn't matter. There's always that sense of problem to be solved, losing rather than winning, overmatched, in over your head, struggling, improvising in the face of ever-growing conflicts. That's kind of a central thing. So P is for punishing. R, just quickly, is for relatable, which just means the audience has to relate to the main character. They have to put themselves in their shoes, identify with what they're going through on an emotional human level so that they can really care whether they solve whatever it is they're trying to solve. Uh, the O in problem is original, which has to do with, you know, you want your story or your project to do so, have something about it that we haven't seen before that feels fresh and unique to you and your voice or your experience. But it doesn't mean you have to completely reinvent the wheel. You can build on established genres and types of stories that have worked before. There's a reason why they work, but you want to bring something original to it. I love that. That's great. Yeah, thank you. The, the B is believable, which is one place where writers really fall down and not even realize it in screen writing is so often what they write doesn't feel real, doesn't feel believable for a number of reasons. One of them is when you try to be entertaining, you often write things that won't pass the believability test. You know, real life is not necessarily entertaining, right? So when you write things that are very true to real life, sometimes it won't be entertaining enough. And that's one of the criteria that's coming later. The E is for entertaining. But if you write things that are super entertaining, whether it's super funny or super, you know, high action or whatever, it often won't feel real or believable. And different genres have sort of different benchmarks for how believable they need to be. You know, we'll suspend a certain amount of disbelief whenever we watch a story in a certain genre. But if you write, if your characters are doing and saying things that the audience just doesn't believe they would do or say, and they, they feel like the writer's just trying to get them, trying to manipulate them into being entertained, they'll kind of rebel against you. Like the best stories have a grounding of something real. And the things that the characters are doing and saying feel real within the world of that story. Um, and there's a million ways in which that can go sideways uh, in scripts. And often, often it does. But the best scripts are usually ones that feel like they come from a place of realness that you, you almost feel like the writer, you know, put you in the center of something that you just, it feels authentic. And it feels like they know it really well. So the last three letters, L-E-M, L means life-altering, which just means the stakes of what's going on in a story have to be big enough that it feels like the main character's life is going to be altered in a substantial way depending on whether they achieve what they want to achieve or not. If the stakes aren't high enough, the audience doesn't care enough so they don't get invested in whatever the story is. It has to feel like, wow, this really matters to that person. And again, in a comedy, the stakes might be lower. They're not going to be life and death stakes in a comedy, but they can still feel like 
very important life stakes, nevertheless, which the best comedies have that. The main character is maybe funny to watch as they try and get what they want, but it really matters to them or it wouldn't make a good story. So the, the E is for entertaining. Different genres have different ways that they entertain. Uh, obviously, their entertainment is about creating an emotional experience for the audience that they've kind of come to your project wanting to have, whether it's an experience of laughter or you know suspense. There's a certain kind of emotional experience they're going for. They want to be scared. They, they want to be thrilled. They want to be awed. They want to be um, you know swept up in romance. So you kind of want to know what your entertainment offering is and make sure you're successfully offering it. And then the last one, the M, is for meaningful, which just has to do with theme. You know, great stories tend to be about something more than just the surface plot. There's something being explored about the human condition that hopefully resonates for audiences so that it feels like it affects them in their life in some way that, that they, they take with them. You know, some stories do that more than others. Some genres need that more than others. But I think the best stories that stand the test of time usually feel like they're exploring something meaningful, questions about how to live in this world, questions about values, and you know, how to deal with different kinds of situations, the best way to be in the world. And you know, characters are growing and changing over the course of the story, you know, dealing with some kind of flaw, perhaps, that by the end of the story they fixed. All of that has to do with the deeper meaning that the audience takes from the story beyond just the kind of entertaining, punishing plot. I love that. I mean, then what a teaser for our audience to, to go check out the book, because uh, I could I could listen to you talk about that for about the next hour alone. Um, I, you know, so uh, I'm sure the thing that our listeners are thinking right now is like they're checking those off their list of like, all right, well, I need to tell the story of a chief financial officer who needs to implement a software and it's going to check none of those. You know what I mean? Like the, the folks who have like, well, I have this story that's reality, that's super boring and we always tell it the same way. And it, I don't feel like it's any of these. Like what's your, what's your advice to, to the folks who don't feel like they have a story? How can you create some of that magic um, with a story that might not be as compelling? Well, I mean, I think I would think one part of the marketing equation, not being a, really a marketer myself, other than marketing my projects, um, which I guess counts, but not a marketing executive. Um, I would think one part of the st- of the way in which story comes into play is when you're marketing, when you're selling, uh, you are selling yourself or selling your brand, or you know, in a way that you want to intrigue the potential buyer and get them invested emotionally in some way in what it is you're offering. And so whether that comes from, you know, I assume your audience aren't people making one-on-one individual sales calls where they can personally talk about themselves and something they went through that is kind of like their story that when you hear that story, it makes you go, wow, I relate to them. I feel like I know them now. I feel like I'm rooting for them. I'm excited at what they achieved or whatever. That's certainly one aspect of story being used in, in business. Um, but when you're, when you're trying to market uh, market a product to someone where there isn't that one-on-one thing, but you're more creating a campaign. So you're trying to imagine and speak to their problems that really matter to them, that have life-altering stakes in some way to them and to what their day-to-day experiences and, and what they're trying to do in the world. And that maybe speaks to them in a way that is 
that is about something human and universal that has some emotion and passion to it. It may look boring on the surface, but it's their life and their livelihood, and they probably are invested in it in a way that goes beyond just this is what I have to do to cash a paycheck. It's more like they chose to be in this particular profession or to be dealing every day with this particular problem that you're trying to help them solve or the world that that problem exists in is a world that they care about. So I think the more you can inspire them to feel like they get me and they get why I do what I do for a living or why you know they get the nature of these problems and why they matter and how amazing it would be to solve them um, and what it is that I really need and they get the types of challenges that I'm dealing with, how punishing it is, you know, uh, and, they, and they can speak about it in a way that's very human, that isn't just technical, but is more, you know, whenever you get on the human level, that's kind of like the soft underbelly of human experience and emotion and the core things people want and need in life um, that they care about the most. I think that always tends to resonate in, in any setting. And so whether it's your own core needs or the person you're selling to or both, I guess I would always say, and this is what I'm always telling writers to do. It's like, you're not just, you're not just writing about something that you think is interesting and the audience is hopefully going to find it interesting. You're trying to grab them emotionally and make them care about your people and experiences that they're going through as if they were going through it so that they actually get emotionally involved, which is what they want. They want to be emotionally involved. They, they want there to be this deeper level of caring and passion and purpose as they're following your character or following your story and whatever its challenges are. So the more you can speak to that and meet them on that human level, as opposed to more superficial intellectual surface level, uh, the probably the better off you're going to do. Yeah. I, you know, we always talk about like the key to marketing is like understanding why people buy. Right. And it's like, well, why do you need to buy this software? It's like, well, uh, it's because it makes, you know, this 47% of our employees more productive. Well, why does that matter? And it's like, well, because those people get you know, super frustrated and they do whatever. Well, why does that matter? It's like, well, because if they're super frustrated, it's like, you know, then they're not going to be promoted as faster. And it's like, well, why does that matter? And you kind of go down the thing and it's like, you can get down to the individual person who it's like, yeah, they want to make partner at their firm because their, you know, mom never made partner and it matters to them or whatever it is. There's some, there's always a human element to why we buy and a lot of that stuff, people don't really know necessarily the reasons for themselves, but if they can see themselves in, in someone else, in someone else's story or journey, then it can kind of help them like reach that self-discovery. And I, I think you're just, you know, you nailed it in the way that there are things, there are pieces of that journey that that human side that you like can find and tell stories about. Cool. Yeah, it definitely sounds like we're speaking the same language. So I'm glad that 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 you resonate with that because that that really is to me the name of the game with with writing is find that human connection. Well, Eric, before we get out of here, we're going to do some quick lightning round questions. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com/marketing to learn more about marketing in the world's number one CRM. Lightning round questions, Eric. Are you ready? Yes. Number one, do you have a favorite app on your phone? You know, I really like voice memos. It sounds pretty, pretty simple. It's uh, included in the iPhone, but to me, the voice recorder is such a hugely helpful tool to have uh, that I use all the time. And as a writer, as a place to record ideas, uh, it's, uh, it's great. But I also love 
notes as well. I mean, these are both just like included apps that are free, but uh, those two things as a writer are super helpful in my daily life more so than almost anything else. Okay. What is your favorite place to write? Uh, my office at home, but, I, but I'm also one of those people that you might find at a Starbucks writing because it's nice to be around people if it's the right Starbucks and the right amount of noise and, and not too much noise. What story or, or TV show have you seen recently out in the wild that you were jealous of? Fleabag. So good. <laughs> Man, with the twist. What is your favorite vacation spot? Probably New York City. Do you have a hidden talent or passion? Piano and music in general. What is your best advice for a first-time writer? Recognize that if this is something you really care about, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's a learning process and will always be. So seek to learn uh, and dedicate yourself to it's going to take time to learn, and that's okay. It does for anyone. I love it. Eric, final question. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? You know, I'm a pretty spiritual guy, so I guess I would I would say in general, I wish people would move beyond just asking the kind of surface questions and get into the, like the deeper meaning of life type of stuff because I have a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts about that that don't necessarily come up, <laughs> but I could talk about for a long time. Well, geez, now you put the pressure on. I, we're we're going to have to record a, a second episode uh, to get to the deeper meanings of life because you you really set the set the pedestal for me pretty high there. <laughs> well, I'd be happy to. Just let me know when. Yeah, awesome. Uh, yeah, you might you might end up being our, our screenwriting correspondent uh, for uh, for marketing trends. Um, anyone, by the way, if you don't know, uh, you can check out flyingwrestler.com, find all his stuff there. Um, and, uh, if you need screenwriting coaching, if you need script consulting, uh, all sorts of fun stuff, Eric's awesome. As you just listened, uh, any final thoughts, any things to plug? Well, besides the book, which we've also, we've plugged sufficiently, I think, uh, no, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm actually out there looking to make an independent film in the coming year. My first time as a writer director. So I've got an investor's proposal pitch deck that's going out. Uh, so, uh, if there's anyone out there who really always wanted to produce a movie and has the funds that they could put some toward that and want to be involved in that creative process, you know, you find my email and, and uh, look me up. I'll send you the details. Yeah. I, we, we should talk offline. I'm always, uh, uh, always looking to, uh, to corral resources for fun projects. Um, thanks again. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. And it was a lot of fun. Take care. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing.
you have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.